That is close enough. It's an Iranian film podcast. Episode 6, Abbas Kiostami's Life and Nothing More, a.k.a. And Life Goes On. I would hate to sound like Jigsaw from the film Saw, but do you want to play a game? I would love to play a game. Durubar Shoma Dustana Aziz. This is the Cinerex Podcast, where we discuss all things Iranian films. I'm Kaveh Mohebi. And I'm Farhan Moradi. I'm going to give you the logline to three or four movies. Okay. And you just tell me if the director is an Iranian director. Okay. Or if the director is a non-Iranian director. I can try my best. And I won't tell you the name of the title. Just hearing the logline, okay? Okay. Iranian-Canadian journalist Maziar Bahari is detained by Iranian forces who brutally interrogate him under suspicion that he is a spy. That is Jon Stewart's movie called Rosewater, starring Gail Garcia Bernal. And (laughs) let me try to see if I can even get the year of the movie. Did it come out in 2013? I don't have that year. Uh, (laughs) Maybe. Sounds about right. I'm going to look it up. But that's correct. Directed by non-Iranian, starring a non-Iranian. What year did I say? 2013. Damn, it's 2014. You still get the point. Okay, all right, I'll take it. We just want Iranian or non-Iranian. I'll take it. I'm like, I'm like, it was shot by this person. It was filmed in this location. This person you failed to mention the DP. Yeah, this person did the craft catering. Okay, ready? Yeah. Round two. A customs officer who can smell fear develops an unusual attraction to a strange traveler while aiding a police investigation, which will call into question her entire existence. Mm, that's Iranian. Is that the movie Mars? Border. Yeah. That's right. Is that Ruzbe's dad's movie? No, it's Ali Abbasi. Oh, okay. Acting under the cover of a Hollywood producer scouting a location for a science fiction film, a CIA agent launches a dangerous operation to rescue six Americans in Tehran during the U.S. hostage crisis in Iran in 1979. Uh, that is Ben Affleck's film Argo. We're just looking for... Written by... We're just looking for Iranian or non-Iranian. Uh, I don't believe Ben Affleck is Iranian. <laughs> I, I'd say you're correct. Yeah. You know what, though? I think more uh, non-Iranians need to make Iranian movies, you know? Well... Let's just... Well, we'll have to see, I guess. Jedi Master Obi-Wan Kenobi has to save young Leia after she's kidnapped, all the while being pursued by an Imperial by Imperial Inquisitors and his former Padawan, now known as Darth Vader. Uh, that is the 2022 web series Obi-Wan Kenobi, uh, show run by Canadian filmmaker Deborah Chow. But I will I will say that I'll give you partial credit because non-Iranian creator or showrunner but hossein amini is a writer on that show and the director i believe oh i didn't know that he was he was the writer of drive with the ryan gosling film screenplay right oh no way yeah so he wrote and i think directed a few episodes i didn't know that i know there's a bunch of iranians involved in the loki show oh cool there's a uh one of the production designers is iranian all right last one and we will dive into it from there a Mossad agent embarks on her first mission as a computer hacker in the hometown of Tehran. Is that the show Tehran on Apple TV? We're just looking for Iranian or non-Iranian director. Not Iranian. That's correct. I don't. In fact, I don't think there's a single Iranian involved in any creative uh, leading capacity on that show. 
across every single department. I don't think there's a single one. We're just looking for Iranian or not Iranian. <laughs> I told you, not Iranian. Uh, I'll do one more for fun. But like, like I said, we need more non-Iranians making Iranian content. That's what we need. There's, there's too many Iranians making. I, I'm being uh, facetious for people listening, by the way. After a global pandemic destroys civilization, a hardened survivor takes charge of a 14-year-old girl who may be humanity's last hope. Wait, read that one again? After a global pandemic destroys civilization, a hardened survivor takes charge of a 14-year-old girl who may be humanity's last hope. I don't know. I've never heard of that before. Uh, Iranian? We'll give it to you. It's The Last of Us, which the last few episodes of that series was directed by Ali Abbasi. Oh, no way. Okay. See, the point of this being that, like, Iranians have gone on to write such eclectic, diverse stories about trolls who work as border control guards or uh, Jedi masters who go on adventures saving uh, young princesses or even stories about global pandemics and video game adaptations about having to be the hero. Mm. Why is it that when it comes to stories about CIA Mossad agents going to Tehran or um, journalists, Iranian journalists being in prison. Why are those stories always taking, taken by non-Iranians? Mm. <laughs> exactly. Because uh, it's another form of colonization where you colonize a people's culture and stories as opposed to going in and overtly stealing their oil. I think we're going to have to expound on that in a future episode. Sounds good. We have a few episodes coming up where we're talking about um, a bunch of non-Iranians who make movies about Iranians. Yes. Um, We haven't, I don't think we've yet decided if we're going to do like four movies in one episode or if we're going to do like every 10 episodes or something, we do one. Yeah. Four movies in one episode would be a long day. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? Let's sprinkle them out. We'll make it like a little yeah. fun thing where like every 10 or 15 episodes, we like sprinkle in one of these. I like that idea. Now, I got a question for you about today's movie. Go on. There's two titles for this one. Do you go by the literal translation, which is life and nothing more? Or do you refer this to this film by and life goes on? I like that you ask this. I like um, life and nothing more. More. What are you? I am torn. I like the monosyllabic pacing of and life goes on. Okay. Just in terms of the the oral a u r a l um, way the way it sounds in my ear. But life and nothing more. I do like sticking true to the literal translation, and I feel this. Kind of harkens back to our where's the friend's house conversation mm-hmm. yeah. where I asked you why it's grammatically incorrect in English. But then even my mother who listened to the episode said, no, but it's the correct translation because the, in Iran, in, in Farsi, in Persian, it, this, this, that sentence makes total sense, which I know that. I know that it makes sense in yeah. Farsi. But life and nothing more is the literal translation because the line he says is... Yeah. Which is Life and Nothing More. Yeah. Uh, which is, of course, the second film in Kiarostami's Coker trilogy. The first being Where's the Friend's House? This film. And the third, which we will do at a future date, uh, Through the Olive Trees. But before we dive into it, with your permission, Farhan, mm-hmm. I will do a quick plot summary. Do it. After a devastating earthquake rocks the province of Gilan, 
an unnamed film director and his young son, Puya, traveled to the devastated area to search for the actors of the movie the director made there a few years ago. Hane Dust Kojost. Where is the friend's house? During their travels, they encounter citizens, observe people on the road whose lives have been destroyed, and witness devastation and casualties. In this quest, they found how people who had lost everything in the earthquake still have hope and try to live life to the fullest. And for those who have lost everything, somehow impossibly, life goes on. It has a Rotten Tomato score of 100% and an audience score of 93%. Farhan, what did you think of Life and Nothing More? What was the, the, the average rating again? You said it was 100% critics liked it. What was the average rating? 93 was the audience score. Oh, 93%. okay, okay. Do we have the average rating? I don't know. I have to look that up. We can do. It is 8.7 out of 10. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Um, I liked it. I liked the first one a lot more. I like that now whenever I say that's interesting, you smile. I instantly thought, I'm like, oh man, he did not like this movie. <laughs> I did not like it, but I also didn't think it was like a masterpiece. That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> you felt like um, it was a masterpiece? Yeah. And it took me again with a lot of Iranian films this is happening. It takes a lot of introspection and reviewing to really have it elevate for me mm. because there's so much going on. Mm. And not that it's like... I'm doing the artsy fartsy thing and trying to pull out more from it than there is. But specifically for this film, the more I watched it, the more I started, it just hit differently. And I started wondering if I even like this more than where's the friend's house. What? Yeah. That's a spicy take. Well, we should start by saying that this is a docu-fiction and in more so than definitely more so than where's the friend's house. Yeah. And not his first docu-fiction, but it really leans onto this was art imitating life, imitating art. For sure. What what were your like? What were your feelings when you were watching the film? Okay, mm, these are just some general notes. Um, yeah, nothing uh, too deep. We'll get to my deeper notes when we get to deeper analysis. These were just things that kind of stood out to me at random. Yeah, just things that I noted. Um, I like. There were a lot of little weird idiosyncrasies that I noticed throughout the film, which I think. Kiara Stami is a master at like whether it's when his son goes to pee on the side of the road and then he stops and he goes and he hides behind like the smallest the twig tree, tree. yeah, and yeah. It, the tree is like maybe half an inch wide the twig <laughs> yeah it's really a twig growing out of the ground yeah or when the dad is talking to the guy on the side of the road and he's he has like a giant bag of rice hoisted over his shoulder and the whole time this guy's crumbling under the weight of this bag of food yeah but they have a whole conversation and at no point is the dad like hey why don't you put that bag down they're like (laughs) oh i'm sorry to bother you he just like keeps talking to him like this is normal i also love how similar the father and son are Mm -hmm. i think that a lot of movies can learn from that to not just show oh, they have like the same colored jacket or, oh, (laughs) they both like bananas or something. But I want to see them speak the same way and have the same mannerisms. And this film really does that. Yeah. Even when he's in the car and he's like talking to the dad about the grasshopper. Yeah. And he's like lecturing the dad about it before he like almost causes a car accident. The kid is talking to his dad the way that the dad talks to him yeah yeah that's very true and uh there's another point in the film where 
the dad and the son basically have the exact same lines of dialogue with a villager about drinking water. Mm-hmm. They're like, is it drinkable? And the person's like, yeah, it's spring water. So why is it coming from a faucet? Because we ran pipes to the spring, which I also yeah. love because it, it shows that they're kind of city it's. Yeah, yeah. You know, like they come from the city. They don't understand that. Yeah, you can run pipes to to a spring, you know. Um, and uh, And I just love that you can really see that this child is turning into his dad. Uh, also, I really liked how he was constantly framing out people's faces, mm-hmm. whether that be when he pulls up to the first police officer and he's just off the side of the road, which I suspect was a result of not being able to have a police officer in that moment. Cause even when that other car that goes by, he plays a siren sound, but it's not a cop car that goes by. Right. It's just like a car with random kids in the back of the car. <laughs> but uh, when he pulls up to the first police officer, not not the board, not the the one at the toll booth. That one you also don't see. I think you see his hands. But the one uh, the the one police officer that he pulls over to, he. Uh, you don't even see him. You don't see a car. You don't see a person. You don't see a shoulder. Nothing. You just hear a voice off screen. And a few times as the movie goes on, um, he has conversations with people where they're either off camera or their face is cut off. And I think that it's a really interesting choice. Yeah. And, and I think that it kind of adds to the intrigue of the film. Um, and when you're dealing with a film that is this realistic... I think it's good to have moments where you can infuse more intrigue. Yeah, well, and going to back to the fa- fact that it's a docufiction, a lot of what you're talking about is a product of him actually going out to shoot this footage. Yeah. But then also setting up shots and creating a production around certain scenes. So what I had heard about was, you know, that woman, for instance, who's crying, who lost everything. She's mm-hmm. talking to him. Mm-hmm. That woman was actually talking to Kiarostami, who's in the car driving. mm and like, so a lot of those scenes were, and then later on he would reshoot those scenes with the actor who's playing essentially him mm-hmm. and then cut those scenes overlapping each other to make it seem like she's talking to the, the actor. Mm. But it was a lot of times Kiarostami going, driving around and talking to people and having the camera out his window. Mm. So a lot of the times it's like this, like a lot of the film, I think where the final version was done through editing of like, oh, here's an interesting moment I got. I didn't get the sound. I didn't get the video footage, but I heard it or something like that. And then he's like recreating it sort of like it's a production, mm-hmm. but it's also real stuff. He went on did, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? So it's about, you know, there's, and I will get to it when I talk about behind the scenes, but there was a lot of stuff that Kiarostami wanted to, he'd specifically go to certain towns and shoot footage and later on go up to those people in the village and be like, do you mind? Like, do you have something a little bit dustier you can wear? Like to make it really look like you just came out of like the rubble or whatever. And some of the actors like didn't want to because they knew they were being filmed and they were like, they'd rather have their nicer clothes on. Oh, I see. So like one example specifically was the two young women, the young girls, the little girls that are uh, washing the dishes in the water. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He want, he specifically asked them later on if they had something like a, like a different kind of rusati they could wear that was a little bit dustier, dirtier. But the, the girls specifically said they wanted to wear these ones. Yeah, they were very like floral yeah. and nice, I noticed. So it's a little bit of this stuff of like he was filming real footage, but the director in him was like, well, can we like lean into this a little bit more and make it more, you know, like how do we make a scene out of this? Mm-hmm. So it does draw that line between the real footage he's shooting i also think like going back to the opening scene because i'm always thinking about opening these scenes do you remember the very first thing you see in here in this movie that's the hands 
or the first thing you see uh, uh, at the toll booth and the first thing you hear is the radio talking about um, yeah. the need for money to help the victims. It's an aid worker uh, with the Red Cross. Yeah. It's calling for people to like with the prospect of potentially adopting a child because they're in desperate need due to the uh, number of children who've lost their parents in their homes. And so we're hearing this while we're just seeing a bunch of men driving their cars, exchanging hands, exchanging money. Mm. And it's I mean, they're all they're, they're at a toll booth and they're trying to get in. But it's just like this weird image of like a call to assist and then people exchanging hands of money and stuff. And I just didn't I couldn't help the feeling that right off the hop, it's like there's a very cynical outlook here. Mm. Life goes on. Yeah, exactly. Everything's so intentional. So why have the Red Cross woman, a voice of her asking for help to adopt these children, but what we're seeing is not this, men who barely are even hearing this radio station or whatever it is, Mm -hmm. just going about their day. Um, I also really liked how the kids, just like a total tangent, I also really like that the kids are constantly wanting to play. Mm-hmm. And even Puya wanting to stay behind and Mohammad Reza and his sister are like insisting that he stays as well while the dad continues on his journey. Yeah. I thought that was really sweet. Um, I took issue with some of the translations. Mm-hmm. I think some of the translation notes, like I, I was just wondering why they took certain liberties that they did. And there'd be a few times where they would translate things, but also change the meaning of sentences, which I thought was weird, which to me also goes back to whoever translated the title of the film. I don't like that they did that. I also thought it was interesting that he pointed out that these kids in this rural area had to actually go to Tehran to watch Where's the Friend's House. Like people who were in it couldn't even see it oh, right. until right. it was like, oh, I finished school. I did really well. And to celebrate like my dad and I went to Tehran and we watched it, which right. is like hard for them to get to from where they are. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting point. It hadn't even really occurred to me. One of the things that makes me think about is there's an overarching ray of hope throughout mm. the entire film. There's a framing device that he's using about the soccer game that was on the day of the earthquake. Yeah. The father and son are talking about it early on and they're like, maybe the kid wasn't in Gilan at the time. Because he would have, maybe he went to go watch the World Cup soccer game that was playing or whatever. Mm-hmm. And there's constantly this conversation that's brought up between the son and the father, as well as kids later on. And, you know, the World Cup is happening. Mm-hmm. And despite everything, they want to watch the soccer game. The kid yeah. wants to play the soccer game. The, the villagers want to watch the soccer game. And it's also a potential ray of hope that the kid did not die because he might have been out of town watching a soccer game. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting because it harkens back to, We'll get there eventually, but like the line that essentially the guy who delivers the line life and nothing more is in response to the Kiarostami surrogate, the actor saying, do you, you know, and despite all this, all this wreckage and devastation, you're still worried about putting up an antenna to watch a soccer game. And he's like, what else can we do? This is life. This is life. They get like life and nothing more. Life goes on. They have to, these people are finding ways to just, Mm -hmm find meaning in life. Mm-hmm. And if it means putting up an antenna so that everyone can enjoy a soccer game in the midst of all this devastation, that's what they're going to do because yeah. that's what survivors need to do. Yeah. And it's similar also to, to the groom who talks about how him and his wife still went forward with the wedding and like what their, their banquet for the wedding was like, he like went through rubble of his like uncle's house and found tomatoes and like they grilled those yeah. tomatoes. Like they, sl- yeah. they spent their nights 
under like a piece a of plastic, plastic that they had found. Yeah, that it was like for sheltering them. That's where their wedding night was, their honeymoon, yeah, yeah. Night, essentially. And and I like also that he's like, well, my my wife and I had a conversation, and we were like, well, if we don't get married now, we could die in the next earthquake. So we might as well continue to live our lives and find happiness where we can. Yeah, which I thought was really beautiful. Yeah, we should just we should mention for like people who might have not not seen the film, the director stops and talks to this groom who's putting on his socks and. The, the director realizes in the midst of all this chaos, you still decided to have your wedding. And he's like, yeah, I go, so you didn't have any casualties. Like nobody, none of your guests who were supposed to get the wedding died. He's like, no, some of them did die, but we had that talk. My wife and I, that we mm-hmm. should still go on because this is like, like this is life. This life is short. Who knows? Yeah. So they mustered, they mustered through this tragedy to continue finding a reason to have a wedding. Yeah. Should we get into the history and the context about the earthquake and what happened? That's a good idea. Let me start by saying, yeah, in 1990, an earthquake devastated the area around the farming village of Kokar in Iran, killing 50,000 people, including 20,000 children. And Abbas Kiarostami and his 11-year-old son, Bahman, drove to Kokar to try to find the two boys who had acted in his film, Where's the Friend's House? When he later told an audience in Germany about the journey, someone suggested that he turn the story into a film, and he began filming a short while later, which essentially became this film. Do you want to go into a little bit of detail about that earthquake? Yeah. So the earthquake was a 7.4 magnitude earthquake, and it happened in uh, 1990, as you said. Iran typically does have a lot of earthquakes that occur throughout the country, especially around the Alborz Mountains. Um, So the one that happened that the movie set around resulted in about $8 billion worth of damages but uh, worse than that is the fact that up to 50,000 people died, uh, up to 105,000 people were injured, and over 400,000 people were left homeless. Um, significant aftershocks triggered landslides and flooding, adding to the devastation, and the earthquake was among the strongest recorded in the densely populated Alborz mountain region. Most affected buildings were reinforced masonry structures, contributing to high casualties. Soil liquefaction caused extensive damages in certain areas. Um, The earthquake happened during the country's recovery from the Iran-Iraq war, and Iran was initially hesitant to accept aid due to anti-American sentiment, but eventually received help from the U.S. and other countries. The earthquake also led to an outbreak of acute renal failure, uh, which is like kidney damage and issues with the kidney, affecting 156 individuals with a 14% mortality rate. Those with acute renal failure typically suffered severe injuries and nerve damage. Which is why it's difficult for when we do a podcast like this for us to find levity and moments of comedy, because despite the fact that we want to be as entertaining as possible, and Farhan, you and I have talked about this a lot off, off, off mic, mm-hmm. but... It's so hard, especially for the era that a lot of the films we've discussed take place, to find ways to make light of the situation. Because yeah. it just seems, especially with Kiarostami's work, well, not even not, not even especially Kiarostami, I should take that back. With a lot of these directors, their work, it's like shrouded in tragedy mm-hmm. again and again. And I mean, I think it's one of the reasons why there's such veneration for the works of Kiarostami and Panoi. It's like they they they... They are not, I don't think they're exploitative. I think they're finding meaning behind suffering. They're trying, they're artists who are trying to capture moments and trying to make sense 
it's their way of making sense of an otherwise cruel and unfair world. Mm. That being said, this is the Back to the Future 2 of Kurosami films. <laughs> I'll tell you why. Because he's revisiting Where's the Friend's House. It, a lot of the times in this film, he revisits landmarks. You know that zigzagging lane yeah, that the yeah, kid yeah. runs up? He goes and yeah. sees that spot again, which I had learned, apparently, Kurosami had created that lane. Yeah. as a fictional path that he had created for that movie. So he's revisiting that. He's revisiting the woods that the kid plays in. Or when he finds the little kid, the baby in the hammock. Yeah, that's the woods that he runs film. through, right? That's the woods he runs through. So it's like, just similar to Marty McFly revisiting the events of 1955 in Hill Valley. Kirastami is returning to the scenes of the previous film. And it's it's now under a new, it's under a new scope because it's now a place of tragedy and heartbreak. I think I need to rewatch Back to the Future too because I don't remember him going back to the, back to... The original locations. He does. Because oh, because uh, he steals the almanac back from. Because Biff in the future, uh, this is a tangent now, but Biff from the future goes yeah. and gives the almanac to 1950s Biff. Yeah. So 1950s Biff uses the almanac to become a multimillionaire tycoon. Ba- basically Donald Trump. Yeah, <laughs> he becomes Donald Trump. And they realize the way to get it back is to return to that moment where he got it and steal the almanac back from 1955, Biff. Oh, wow. I need to rewatch that movie. I will any day you want, <laughs> my friend. It's my favorite movie. But yeah, so in a weird way, this is like the greatest hits of his previous work. Um, and again, he has such respect for, I feel like in this film, you see a lot of moments of old men taking their time. Mm. And this is one of the reasons why some might think it's slow, but it's like he stops and this is an old man moving debris and he's asking for directions to Coker and the old man looks up and he looks down and you think he's going to ignore him. So he picks up a second piece of debris and he moves it to the side. Then he's moving that debris out of his way so he can walk over and he can slowly make his way up to the car. And when he finally gets to the car, he's like, sorry, what did you say? And then the, the driver once again is like, sorry, do you know the Coker? And he's like, no, I don't. And that's the scene. And it's like a really long scene. Do you? But it's just like. Are you, are you ready, Kave? Yeah. That's interesting. Is, is, I'm not saying I dislike it. I actually really enjoy it. Did you, do you, did you dislike it? I'll, I'll tell you about it later. Oh, man. Okay. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, like, and just like the thing you said, like the guy, he doesn't help the guy carry heavy things up. Oh, he does offer to help put a thing up the hood of, hood of his car though, right? He's helping travelers sort of along the way, but it's still all in the goal of getting his own thing done. The only time he doesn't is at the end of the movie when the kids are like, don't stop, don't slow down. Yeah. You need to ride the downward momentum to get you up the hill. Yeah. And then the guy tries to, the hitchhiker tries to stop him and he slows down. And as a result, he's not able to get completely up the hill. Then later that same guy comes and helps him get up the hill. Yes, and then that's right. he comes back and picks him up again and then does end up taking him back. There's up. also like something about the way the tr- like speaking of that and the the um other people he meets along, there's like such an inherent trust amongst the villagers that I felt like I made a note of specifically mm. like this woman the woman is carrying a gas canister and she asks if if he'll put it on his car to take it up. Oh yeah, and just leave the, it at the top of the hill. Carrying. And it's like she's not ever worried that he'll rob her. He's not worried that he's going to like do it. He's just like, there's like this small community of people who just inherently trust one another. And I think that's mm. really heartwarming. It, it's, it kind of feels like everyone's part of the same family. Like even the way they speak to strangers, there's a certain sense mm. of like camaraderie and familiarity with one another that from the stories I've heard, 
from my mother who has great love and affection for her country. It sounds like there is this sentiment of like, you meet the right people and you'll have this connection that you feel like you're old friends. Like, did you not get a sense that there seemed to be this like warmth and heartwarming kind of, we're all in this together amongst the villagers? Yeah, especially with the town that they're in. So my mom's family, uh, a lot of them live in this rural area of Mazandaran that is pretty similar to what we're seeing in the movie. Um, and everyone in that town, if they're not directly related, their families go back generations. Mm -hmm. So everybody knows each other. You know what I mean? Like everyone is essentially family to some degree. If it's not blood, then it's through generations of friendship. Yeah. So once you have one other person coming in, you pretty much immediately know this person's not from here and you're typically going to treat them like a guest. Right. Yeah. So. But even it goes the other way. Like he trusts to leave his son with the villagers watching soccer. Like in the last act of the film, he wants to go to that final leg of the journey to go find the boy. And his son's like, can I stay here and watch the soccer game? And he lets him. But he's also familiar with him at this point. Right. Like he's yeah. already been there for like probably perceivably close to a year. He spent time with with these villagers before. You know what I mean? So I think any other city person traveling through here for the first time probably wouldn't do that yeah but he's familiar with them he knows them and it's and it's a kid who comes from a family that he knows like he personally worked with them before Mm -hmm. what did you think about the randomness of dumb luck and life and death that plays throughout the film because there's these people you know there's the he runs into the uh, driver who's crying saying why would god do this to us Mm. Then towards the end, he meets the little boy who talks about the night of the earthquake. He had mosquitoes biting him. So he went over to his mother's bed to ask to sleep with her because her mother sleeps with a mosquito net protection thing. Mm -hmm. And the earthquake happens and his brother who was sleeping in their room, his own room, died because the rubble landed on him. Mm. And so... And he goes, my mother was... The kid says the mother was was sad because she goes, why did the mosquitoes bite your brother too? Mm. And... The driver says at that point, like, it's the, so the mosquitoes in the end saved your life. And he's like, yeah. And there's this certain thing he has, this attachment to this idea of like, just dumb luck and accident. Mm. Like our our entire fate is in the hands of dumb luck and accident. And I thought, I thought there was something really profound about that, Mm. but also it's alluring, but it's like, you can't really quite, it's not tangible. Mm. I didn't. It's funny because it didn't jump out at me, but now that you're mentioning it, I 100% see it. And I think uh, it's a really good analysis. And funny enough, my favorite quote, which we'll get to later, touches on that. Mm-hmm. So I, it's interesting that I didn't even mention that. For me, I guess my deeper analysis of the film has more to do with perspective. So where I found that the first film in the Coquer trilogy was primarily about conformity and rebellion but it did touch on perspectives. Mm -hmm. It was a film about perspectives of generations, right? Mm -hmm. This movie I found was all about perspective, whether it's of the survivors, the dead, the bystanders, uh, city folks, rural folks, adults, children. It's a tapestry of perspectives against the backdrop of the fallout of an earthquake. And kids are all talking about the game though, which I thought was, was interesting, regardless of, if they were from the city, from the village, all these kids, one common thing that they have around this earthquake is that they are all talking about the game mm-hmm. and their perspectives align on that. But then even then, the 
once it comes to their stakes, their their perception of value is way off. Where one's like, oh, let's bet a sock. And the other one's like, a sock? Let's bet a bicycle, right? Yeah, yeah. This little like villager kid probably never owned a bicycle in his life. Yeah. There's, I'll just jump on something. That's really interesting that you say the thing about perspective because one of the notes I read on this was it, it has one of the most POV shots of any Kurosami film. It's got so many, like almost every shot is either the POV of the father looking out the window, mm. the son looking out. There's a lot of backseat shots mm-hmm. or the or the villagers talking to uh, the driver. Mm. So it, this film, especially in the beginning, has a lot of POV shots and it's constantly switching which character you're seeing that view from. Mm. So that perspective is right off the hop, very important to him. Mm-hmm. And also... When they arrive to that town where has my favorite scene when he talks to the old man, but you kind of notice there's a, there's a town they stop at for a bit, right? That's when he meets the groom mm. who's getting married. And the son is like playing through the houses and like picking up little um, items he's seeing. Like there's a little rooster he finds. And oh, yeah, all these that's things right. He's playing with. And the father's kind of like looking on at the devastation. You can't really quite read what the look is on, but it's like there's a sadness in the father's eyes. And there's a, like, it's like the son doesn't have that same. So he's sort of just playing like a kid plays. Their perspectives are so different on that ruined village mm-hmm. to the point where you think the father is like burdened with nostalgia. Like the pain of knowing what was once there is making it harder for him to look at the devastation. Whereas for the kid, he's never been to this town before. He doesn't know what it previously looked like. Mm-hmm. To him, this is like, oh, look, I found this little like ceramic rooster to play with. Look at this other toy I found with. He's like talking to the the parents of like, Parents who have lost their children ever the same you're like, maybe, you know, like maybe it's not this. The kid doesn't have this like pain of what was once there. Yeah. Whereas the father does. And yeah. I feel like that goes back to what you're saying about the soccer. These this generation, at least for the perspective of this film, they're not as burdened with what's just happened to them as the adults are. Mm. And I think it that that through line of perspective also comes back to Kiara Stami himself. Like, I think this whole movie is almost a way of him processing his own survivor's guilt. Do you know what I mean? Because he yeah. was there, he's lived with these people, he knows these people, and so this happens. And he just, what, continues to live his life in Tehran? I think him taking a camera, taking a small group of people and going there and centering a film around this earthquake, I think, lends to that. And, and like you said, it has a ton of POV shots. And I think that that ties into this being about not just this director character in the film, but Kiara Sami himself processing his own feelings around what's happened. Yeah. And grappling with the idea of faith around it, too, because mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and assume what, how Kiara Sami specifically felt about uh, God and fate and all this stuff. But definitely the people in the village do. Mm-hmm. And going back to the, the idea of the dumb luck and the mosquitoes and like the one guy asking, why would God do this to us? Like they're all going back to the idea of like, why did God do this to us? And what more was there for us to do? What could it, well, what else could we have done to prevent this? And they're, they're kind of helpless. They're just pawns in this game of chess that they're hardly participating in, you know? Kava, did you have other uh, deeper analysis that you'd like to share about the film? Yes. Brace yourselves though. It's wordy. Hit me. It's not really wordy. I think this film is about the power of the human spirit to persevere because they've lost everything. But at this very moment, their biggest concern is to get, a good antenna signal so that they can watch a soccer game. <laughs> so like they think like problems will come and problems will go. Um, some light and some ob- obviously devastating. But if you can't, if you can't find moments to accentuate this, this constant suffering with at least some levity, then you're doomed to a life of hell. 
And it reminds me of Kurt Vonnegut, his famous quote. He's my he's one of my favorite authors. His famous quote is, if this isn't nice, I don't know what is. In his commencement speech to uh, Lehigh University, he prepares them all. He prepares them that after this speech, it begins. Your road to degree ends today. Whatever happens next is life, as in real life. He ponders about what we're here on this earth to do. We're here to help each other get through this thing, whatever it is. And looking at his students, he says, if this isn't nice, I don't know what is. Indicative of the scenes when he talks to the groom who tells him they got married the day after the earthquake. So many of their relatives have been killed and they've waited so many years to get married, but they knew that if they had to wait to get, if they had to wait to ask for elders permission, they'd have to wait for the mourning period to be over and they'd have to wait and wait and wait. So they just got it over with. And they spent three nights of their nuptials sleeping under plastic and eating tomatoes. And it's just, he want, he says, we want to get on with starting a family. Those who died didn't know what was coming. The next earthquake might kill us too. And it's all going back to the power of the human spirit to persevere. Mm. That's my deeper analysis. I really like that. Some of my favorite parts of the movie were exactly what you talked about. That beat with them trying to align the signal to get the soccer game. Yeah. I thought it was interesting because at the bottom of the hill, everyone's kind of mourning the loss. Everyone's kind of mourning the losses. Yeah. And kids are trying to help by like washing dishes that were like pulled out of the rubble and stuff. And then you look and there's like yeah. a chain of people like going up the hill. <laughs> yeah. Yelling from one person to the next person. And then they yell that message to the next person. Yeah. And you know, you know that someone tried to line up the antenna for them at the top of the hill and couldn't hear anyone. So they had to come up <laughs> yeah. with this idea of like, yeah. oh, wait, why don't you go halfway? And then somebody else goes a little further up and then we'll like <laughs> yeah, yell the message right. to each other. Yeah. So that I think that that little scene, that little moment totally encapsulates that in in one sense with something as what you would think is as small as a soccer game. Mm-hmm. And then also that scene that you mentioned with the uh, the groom, that was another one that I had called out as one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for, for all the same reasons you mentioned. And I thought that that was very beautiful. And it reminds me of a lot of the stories that I heard around my parents. Like my parents got married in the wake of the revolution. Mm-hmm, yeah. And they had children during the Iran-Iraq war. Like these are these are th- when you're in these moments of crisis, you have to keep living your life. I think your deeper analysis on the film is pretty fitting. Thank you. Let's jump into behind the scenes and trivia. Hit me. I'm going to rock you with a very shocking one right off the hop. Okay, go for it. This is going to change the way you talk about Kiarostami forever. Okay. Kirstami himself didn't think of these three films as a Coker trilogy. It was just sort of something brought up by critics that he eventually came to accept. He admitted that the films sort of follow one another, but didn't consider them technically a trilogy. And he actually thought this film, Through the Olive Trees and Taste of Cherry, made for a stronger thematic trilogy because of its themes of life and death and the conflict between the two. That's cool. I haven't seen... The other ones. So I'll uh, I'll have to come back to this later. See, this goes back to this idea of other people telling Kurosami what his movies are about and him being like, yeah, yeah. oh, that's interesting. Like the thing with the doors. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I remember. Like, like that Q&A, the guy putting up his hand and being like, yeah, like I noticed there's all these doors in the film and like, like, what's the deal with doors? He's like, oh, wow. I didn't even realize I was doing that, yeah. <laughs> which I think is funny. Yeah. This film is at a crossroads in his career because it was the last film he had made for this organization that he had headed called Kanun, 
which was the state-run organization. It's the Institute for the Intellectual Development of Children and Young Adults, which was started by the Shah's wife, Farah. Oh, cool. Uh, the purpose of all of this, this institution was to make educational films for children. So Kiarostami had been the, one of the major players in this institution, and that's all of his films up until this point were made under that organization. That organization. This was the last film that he made under that organization for reasons I'll get into when I get into critical reactions. But um, yeah, he never made another film as part of that organization because the organization essentially got dissolved after this film. Whoa. So this is actually considered a crossroads, a pivotal moment in his career because he never made another film for that organization again. It's interesting that the organization was even allowed to continue after the revolution, if it was started by the queen. It was, um, I mean, it didn't last too much longer. You, I'll get to that, but they essentially started little by little dissolving Okay, okay. anything that existed in this eventually. Even still, 10 years, like I would have thought that just right away they'd be like, okay, we're getting rid of this, and now we have the Islamic Republic Film Center or something. Yeah, I mean, yeah, essentially it got there. The son in the film, Puya, is the son of the cinematographer of the film. Oh. And Puya would later grow up to be a musician, and you can hear his music being played in Kiarostami's later film, ABC of Africa. Cool. Or ABC Africa, sorry. Cool. Next, BTS? Uh, the car they are driving is in the film is Kiarostami's actual car. It's a Renault. And it led to criticisms by some Iranian critics at the time for reasons that I will get into when I get to critical reaction. Okay. But it's his own car they're driving, Kiarostami's real car. Here's another one that's going to make your head explode. Go. Not a single interior in this entirety of film at all. What about the interior of the car? Interior of car, but no interiors of houses. I mean, I'm going to push back on that one. Because there's a couple times where they're like inside of what would have been an interior. Yes. But there's yes, like a true. wall missing. So it's got like three yes. walls. But Well, yeah, he's literally breaking the fourth wall yeah. and metaphorically breaking the fourth also, wall. Also, isn't the first shot of the film shot through like the cameras inside of the toll, the booth, toll booth? And the foreground is all interior. I guess that counts as an interior. I'm True. pushing back on that one. All right, fine. Someone was looking to make a meaningful contribution to the IMDb page for this film. That wasn't film. on the IMDb page. What was that? <laughs> that, was in that was in DVD commentary. What? Yeah. All right. Someone was rushing at the last minute to like come up with stuff <laughs> for the DVD commentary. Yeah. And they're like, oh, uh, there's no interiors. And they didn't yeah. give it much more thought than that. And that's it for BTS and trivia. All right. Critical reactions. Uh, it was screened... In Uncertain Regard section at the 1992 Cannes Film Festival. Mm. This film got the worst. It's got some of the worst reviews he ever got in Iran of all of his films. Wow. And it was partially due to regime change. But there was a pretty serious backlash about Kiarostami as a director following this film. Amongst a certain group of critics. Mm. Just to go into a little bit of what I had told you was uh, right after the screening of this film on, at Cannes. There was an intensified campaign against the liberal minister of culture, Mohammad Khatami, who in, in that same summer of 92 was forced to resign in the wake of pressure from the most conservative factions of the Iranian regime. His, re his replacement by a firm supporter of the latter, Ali Larijani, was immediately followed by a marked and systematic reaction to all cultural circles, naturally including that of cinema, which effectively put an end to Kanun, the Institute of Intellectual Development of Children and Young Adults which is who Kiarostami partnered with. Mm. So in came this much more conservative minister of culture. And with that came a wave of harsh criticism towards his film. Mm. 
Mm. Um, it was sort of part of this regime change. But a lot of people, a lot of these critics said that this was a first step of Kiyosami abandoning this culture and becoming a bit of an elite, elitist and becoming what they called a festival director. The sentiment among many Iranian critics at the time was a sort of frustration that he was becoming more and more of this festival director and neglecting his roots. And one example of this is when he shows the poster of Where's My Friend's House? And do you remember what kind of poster it was? It was French. They hated that. The use of the French poster was one example they used to call him out on that. I mean, it's petty, but they were like, why does he have to use a French poster for the film? Can I comment on this? Yeah. So I actually made a note of that too. About Did you also find it petty? I, I didn't, no, I don't think it's petty. But I, I will say that I think that Kiorostami in general, I think, gravitates towards trying to make his things, at least on a surface level, look European. Yeah. So, yeah. like, if you compare the music in this film to the music in Where's the Friend's House, the music in Where's the Friend's House is, is all, like, classical folk Iranian music, yeah. which fits for where the film takes place. You know what I mean? He uses Vivaldi in this one. Yeah, which I thought was kind of weird. And I actually didn't feel like it fit the film. It it took me out of the film. I agree. He also tends to gravitate towards casting actors who have lighter skin and lighter eyes. And I know that it's set in northern Iran and that there are a lot of people there with lighter skin and lighter eyes, but that's not everybody. No, that's true. Like it's it's still a variety of people. Like even just within my mom's family, where some of her uncles have super white skin and blue eyes, mm-hmm. you'll he she'll also have uncles who have darker skin and darker eyes. Of course. You know yeah. what I mean? So that was always a little weird to me. And in this movie, he, he does the same. Even the guy, the director that he hires or the actor that he hires to play the director, who's supposed to be a stand in for him. Like that guy looks like a white guy you would see walking around in New York. Mm-hmm. But Kiara Sami doesn't look like that. He looks very Iranian. Yeah. So I wouldn't be surprised if there's a little bit of at least subconsciously, he's trying to appease the European audience more by using Vivaldi, by using a French poster, by hiring actors who look more European than they do Iranian, at least en masse. It's different when it's one or two characters, but when it's like almost every character in your movie, I think it 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 actually took me out of the film. Yeah. I, and that's a fair, like, I, I, I kind of actually agree with you on the Vivaldi too. You have to also remember that, like, where the criticism is coming from, specifically with the cultural shift that, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. Like, I'm by no means supporting the the background of 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 the criticism. I know, I'm I'm making it clear to the audience listening. I'm not by any means supporting censorship from the super Islamic government that is like pushing all this all these censorships and criticism on Kiarostami. To me, it's one of the plethora of weird critiques that they have towards him i agree with one of those critiques um and i and i think that it's as as a result of uh of weird international pressure i'm gonna just defend you here too i think this is this i mean it wasn't just like there was like an islamic critic that was doing this was a sentiment that was based in nativism and people being like proud of their country and Mm -hmm. you find this in any country you'll find if a korean director goes and makes a bunch of korean films and then goes to france and makes a french film 
you'll find people critics and be like man like he's kind of like he's sold out man like he's gone to he doesn't you know you find this in any country anyway so it's a pretty standard and understandable criticism to be like mm-hmm. he's trying to not show his iranianness anymore for some reason right mm-hmm. but one criticism was also that he's not showing enough people suffering someone some of the critics were like you're just showing uh, families and kids playing soccer and they were like kids and so, it, it, there was like there was just like a lot of like I think people were really in a sensitive spot at the time mm-hmm. based on what had happened. And they were expecting something else from Kiarostami that he, Kiarostami himself wasn't interested in. Like he didn't have an agenda necessarily with making this film. He was making this film to ask questions. Mm. And, you know, in that people kind of were looking for him like, Kiarostami, give us answers in a time of need. And that's not necessarily the director's job mm. to give you answers. It's a director's job. It's an artist's job to ask questions. Mm-hmm. And I think people weren't in the right headspace. Now, if you allow me, I want to read to you a little bit of a paragraph from what was considered the most negative review he got for this film and arguably the most negative review he ever got in his career. Okay. Hit me. It's devastating. By critic and filmmaker himself in his own right named Shahrukh Dolku. Kiarostami wants to draw following his previous films, Where's the Friend's House? And yet, just like in the previous film, because of a weak execution, structural confusion, misconception of truth, and a convoluted vision of a man and life, he reaches precisely the opposite conclusion that he wishes to reach. Life and nothing more wants to say that the human life is something precious and praiseworthy, but actually says that the bestial life is dear and lustful. It intends to praise and propagate human life, but in in reality, it propagates the bestial life. In order to give meaning to life, Kiarostami reduces it to the level of animal instincts, eating, sleeping, sex, and defecation. As opposed to noble, conscientious, and selfless men, the people in life and nothing more are introduced at the end as base and mindless animals ready to pull the dead body of the members of their family like carcasses and spend the wedding night under a few sheets of pelastique. There are things in life and nothing more that are extremely troubling, so troubling that one cannot just pass them by. I will just mention them in a list and leave them to the reader's judgment. A man with a touristic appearance, whitish hair, and a European and emotionless look amongst the victims of the earthquake. The presence of a Renault automobile. The French poster of the film, Where is the Friend's House? The repeated appearance of the Red Cross cars. Overwhelming overwhelming emphasis on the instinctual and not intellectual aspects of life. And more importantly, a train of thought that looks at life not face to face and eyeball to eyeball, but from above, high on top, and with a pair of dark sunglasses. This arrogant, emotionless, and calculating look inevitably represents an unreal picture of life. That's wild. I would say like 90% of that review, I'm like, this guy watched the wrong movie. <laughs> like someone mixed up someone mixed up the VHS tapes on his desk and he just straight up watched the last movie. And then it's- and then like two minutes before the deadline, he realized the mistake he made. So he watched like three seconds of the movie and then came up with the thing of like He's driving a Renault, he looks white, and uh, that poster's French. And he, like, worked it into the rest <laughs> of the review. That part, I'll agree with. I'll give him that, the the stuff yeah. with that I already mentioned, too. But I think his, his analysis of the rest of the film, I think, is so out there. This stuff about bestial? Yeah, and, I was like... like I was like, eating, sleeping, sex, and defecation. Like, what film did you uh, see? I know. 
Um, but and also that like last indictment of he doesn't look at people face to face, but from high on top and with a pair of dark sunglasses like he that's calling out Kiarostami being like, oh, You're an for sure. Now looking down on us for sure. Yeah. And and actually, I think that that you could tie that into the way that he shoots a lot of his his uh, surrealist films or his like pseudo real. What was the term that that they they talk about the like genre of films that he does where they're like Panahi too, where it's. Fictional realism is it neorealism? There was something. There was like a term that I get specifically when it's these Iranian films that do it, but where they blur the lines between fiction and reality. Um, that that's that's new real neorealism. Yeah. Okay. So these neorealist films that he does, or docu docu fiction as a genre, docu fiction. Maybe that's what it was. Mm. But yeah, that sometimes to get the performances that he wants, he kind of blurs that line in a way that's ethically questionable yeah so i could maybe see that argument of like looking at it with the dark sunglasses from on high Mm -hmm. taking advantage of people's pain and sorrow to tell the story that he wants to tell yeah that being said he might also be doing that because he sees the value and the merit in those people's sorrow as opposed to using that sorrow to tell his own story I don't know. He's like, but if he was alive and if I ever had a chance to like chat with him, that's definitely something I would ask him about. Cause he, he did it with the photograph in where's the friend's house. And he does it here with the earthquake. I think a big difference though, between here and the photograph is he ripped that photograph. He did not cause this earthquake. Yeah. You know what I mean? I think that that's, that's a massive difference there. So I think the allegation that, he is uh he's doing this from on high is a little weird um i think you can make that argument more funny enough with where's the friend's house and over a much smaller thing like ripping up the the photograph it sounds like this guy this critic who again is a filmmaker in his own right had an axe to grind had a specific axe to grind with him yeah i wouldn't be surprised if they have if they have beef best scene um i already mentioned my uh my runner ups Mm-hmm. which were the groom talking yeah. about the wedding night and the guys aligning the antenna. I thought that that one was so funny. Um, but my favorite scene is when they pick up Mohammed Reza, the kid who is in, uh, in where's the friend's yeah. house, especially because the way that the, the son describes him, he's like, Hey, I saw that kid from your other movie. He's like, which kid? He's like the one who's back hurt. And like I already loved <laughs> yeah. that that in the other movie, he's like, "Hey, why is your face in your desk?" And he's like, "My back hurts." Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I love that that was what stayed out and what what stood out to the to his son. And then the whole conversation with him in the car, I thought was also great. Like that that whole exchange of like, um, "Oh, so you were watching the game during the earthquake?" Yeah. Who is playing Scotland and Brazil? See, I told you, Dad. And then he's like, "Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah you're yeah. right." So go on, tell us what happened. And he's like, uh, "Scotland scored a goal." He's like, "What? Yeah. No, man, I'm talking about the earthquake, not the game." Scotland. <laughs> Uh, 
yeah. that like yeah. whole exchange I thought was incredible. It was it was really well written. It was really funny, and it's and it's I think hard to find humor in these types of movies that are so yeah. depressing and and uh, and it takes a certain level of mastery to be able to infuse humor into them. Mm-hmm. Also, also I feel like this was the first win that our protagonist got because throughout the whole movie he doesn't know if if the kid from the from the first movie is alive or not right Mm -hmm, and he mm -hmm. hasn't found anybody that is giving him hope but then when he finds uh when he finds uh muhammad reza all of a sudden it's like the audience gets a moment to breathe they're like oh thank god he found somebody yeah you know it's the first time that we're like great, we're getting somewhere, we're making progress. He found somebody, they're having a real conversation. This kid is like cracking a couple of jokes. It is somebody that the audience is familiar with from the last movie. So that scene, I think, does a really good job of giving us a moment to breathe, giving us a moment to laugh, and it also uh, nicely ties in together all the themes of the film. It's a good scene. I'll tell you what a be- you want to know what a better scene is? You could try. <laughs> My favorite best scene. It's when, did you recognize the specific moment to break the fourth wall? You told me about this, but I missed it again. So he meets the old man who he, t- he drives back home. Remember? And he's the yeah, old yeah. man yep. who in, in Where's the Friend's House was the guy that was shepherding the kid through yeah. the thing, right? Through the alleyway um, yeah, in Pusha. So he takes him to his house and goes, and he's like, so this is your house. He's like, this is my house. He goes, I'm so used to the other place being your house because of the film. He's like, yep, this is my house. And then he says... Although, in reality, this isn't my house either. This is my house for this movie. <laughs> And then he goes upstairs and he, he's like to get his, the guy's son, a glass of water. Yeah. And he's like, I'm looking for a water, a bowl of water. And he's, and he's like, I, of course I can't find it. Cause this isn't my house. And he's like, he turns right to the camera and says to the real Kiristami, can I get a bowl of water for this kid? And the, the, the woman who comes out and gives him a bowl of water is the first AD of the film. She's coming out with a clipboard in hand. Literally, the fourth wall of this film is being broken where crew members of the film are I, coming out to help. How did I miss this both times? I don't believe you're watching a different version of this movie than I am. You were taking notes or something because it's so blink and you miss it and it's gone. Okay, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you two reactions right now. And later I'm going to go back and rewatch it. And then we'll cut in the apt reaction. So here's reaction number one. <laughs> Why not? Just oh keep- my God, Kave, you're so right. I can't believe I missed that. No, you guess. Here's reaction number two. Here's reaction number two. I'm keeping all of this in. No. Here's reaction number two. Kava, you're an idiot. That didn't happen in this movie. Listen, I think you need to watch the film with your eyes and ears next time. I even quoted it. The old man says yes, to which the director says, I expected to see you in the other house. No, that part, I, I'm with you. I, I heard all of that. It's that second part of it where you're like, 
oh, but this isn't my real movie for this movie. Or this isn't my real house for this movie either. Listen. Can I have some water? And then the AD walks out with a clipboard and like hands it to him like that. You know what I love about this? People who will be huge film fans will be screaming at their podcast right now at you for not having they're like seen in this the, they're, scene. they're in their car right now gripping the steering wheel. They're like... But yeah, so he goes, this was my real house. In the mo- th- th- that was my house in the movie. It wasn't real. And to be honest, this house you can see here isn't my real house either. This is my movie house. The movie people said, this will be your house. And I said, all right. But the truth is my real house was destroyed in the earthquake. For now, I'm living in one of those tents you saw. You missed this entire scene? I missed it. How? I have no idea. I was probably taking notes. It's meaning in this scene, even in this very scene you're watching, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not even this moment is real. It's like he's it's like a breaking of a fourth wall within a fourth wall. And it's it goes back to uh Kirstami has a famous quote saying that uh, a film has its own truth. It doesn't lie. I think I brought it up in the uh, other thing, but mm. um yeah, he like Kirstami once said cinema is based on lying and lying is the fastest way to truth. Mm. So he loves playing with this idea of like what parts of this film are real, what parts are fake. And then at one point he's just messing with your head. He's just like, and now here's a real scene that's talking about how fake the scene is. <laughs> um, so yeah, like, cause he, he goes upstairs looking for the bowl of water. He reaches for one door and it's locked. So he's like, all the doors are locked. I'm looking for a bowl. Then he turns to the camera directly to, and he says, sir, where is that bowl? To Kiarostami, the real Kiarostami. So like, cause he because the the house is a prop and it's not his real house, yeah. he can't op- he can't open the doors to get in. Anyways, my favorite scene: breaking the fourth wall. You clearly fell asleep halfway through this film, and you dreamed up your own <laughs> movie. All right, Kava, tell us what's your least favorite scene. Well, calling it least favorite and and not worst scene is key here because it's not the worst scene. It's my least favorite scene. Okay, go on. And it's because it's the woman who was in tears who can't even give him directions. Not because it's a bad scene. It was just her crying over the house and how it's in ruins. It made me like so. You have no heart. Sad and heartbroken. No, no it made me upset. No, it I sounds really like you have no heart. Too much heart. A victim of the earthquake. We're watching. We're watching a real casualty in this moment, and it's so heart wrenching that it made me. Uh, I it was the toughest scene to watch. I feel for you. Do you think? Yeah. Do you think that's exploitative? I will get to that when we get to our next next uh, few. Okay. Okay. What aged poorly. Okay. Um, can you guess what my least favorite scene is? The old man shuffling his way to the door? Yeah. Yeah. Go on. Go on. That specific scene? That specific scene. So I, in general, I found this movie to be pretty slow. Slower than it needed to be. And I remember the first time I watched this movie, I had the same thought. I was like, this is way slower than it needs to be. And like, What's your hurry? Where's the friend's house, I think, has a drawn out pacing that works for the film. And it but but the pacing is still something that you can easily follow along with without getting tired. This movie, I often found my attention wavering. And that might be why I missed that fourth wall scene. Right. Is because he lost my attention multiple times throughout this movie. He lost my attention. And and so seeing that scene in particular, the one where he pulls over and he's like, excuse me, sir. The guy looks at him. He goes, sir, uh, do you know where Coker is? And then he looks at him and he's like, Coker, Coker. And then he keeps getting back to work. And you're like, wait, did he hear him or not? <laughs> yeah. And then he like grabs the next piece. He puts it down. He's like still just watching him. 
Then he walks over to the car and he's like, what did you say? Yeah. And he's like, do you know where Coca is? And he's like, no, I have no idea. And he's like, thanks. And he leaves. I love it. I think you can I still have scene. a moment. Nah, I think you can still have a scene where he's like, hey, do you know where this is? And he doesn't know. And you show the fact that like, oh, this guy doesn't know without wasting my time. That was See? too much. It was wait. No, there's like, there's a point where you're like, okay, this is purposefully slow and drawn out and like it's meant to breathe and whatever that scene was too much what about what about it being comedic like for comedic like a Jacques Tati film or like even oh, Coen think, Brothers being like it's this scene is so drawn out and it results to nothing and that might be just a, like a joke like a big fat joke of like that's the you know really dry comedy we're gonna make you watch this entire scene and he doesn't know the answer maybe but I really hate when movies try to do like a gotcha or like play a prank on the audience. I genuinely hate when movies do that. I think you and I have talked about this before. I think I remember. You don't like humor and levity in your films? No, I love humor and levity in my films. I hate when it's the director thinking that they're being clever by like playing a prank <laughs> on the audience. It's like, you're not being clever. I understand what you're doing. You're just wasting my time though. Like, Damn, that's poetry. You're talking Favorite about my criticism, right? Them. My criticism is poetry. Your wit and witticism. Tell me about your favorite quote of the film, if you have one. Um, my favorite quote from the film, it's a two-part quote, um, is when his son is having a conversation with the woman who's like washing clothes. Mm -hmm. He says, an earthquake is like a rabid dog. It tears apart unsuspecting victims in its path while passing by the others. Also... The child who died was fortunate because they were about to start their first year of school and thus were spared from doing math. I was like, that's yeah. great. Because yeah. I yeah. love that this kid, like, says this very deep thought, like, shares this very deep thought with this woman. Yeah. Followed up immediately by, like, something kind of funny, but like, hey, you probably shouldn't say that to someone who just lost their child. Yeah. Like, yeah. no filter. And, and just yeah. such a unique, again, perspective on the earthquake. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and then immediately after that, he says a couple other things, which were my runners up. Mm -hmm. So he says, your children who were spared death have gained a better appreciation for life. That was another one that I was like, banger. And then the yeah. last one was, uh, and this one was just another funny line. I learned half from history, half from Mr. Ruhi, and half is self-taught. I thought it was really funny. Oh, yeah, that's really funny. Yeah, I didn't even catch it. It was in that one scene, there was like just banger after banger from this yeah, kid. I yeah. loved it. But but yeah, the my favorite one was the one about the earthquake being like a rabid dog. Yeah, I had that too. Also, you should be lucky that your kid is dead because he doesn't have to do math anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Just the way just the way a little kid would perceive such a tragedy. Yeah. Like, well, at least I don't go to school tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. And that goes back to the thing I was saying of like, that's the same scene where he's kind of going from wreckage to wreckage and picking up like little, little toys and stuff he finds. Like he doesn't see, he doesn't feel this as harshly, the the, the seriousness of the situation. Yeah. Mine is uh, when he meets the guy who essentially is giving the uh, title of the film. 
So he meets that young guy on the side of the road who's putting up the antenna. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he says, with the earthquake and all this morning, you're going to set up an antenna and watch a game? He goes, and the guy responds to him, I'm in mourning too. I lost my little sister and three nieces and nephews. But what can we do? The World Cup comes once every four years and life goes on. Mm. That's life after all. That's life after all is actually the more mm. direct translation, I guess, to what he says in that sentence. You can say life and nothing more too, but it's, mm-hmm. it's that. So yeah, that's my favorite quote. Favorite performance. It's really hard to discuss a favorite actor considering so much of what's taking place in this film isn't acting. I have one. It's Puya, the son. I thought he does such a great job. And I think he does a great job when he's acting like a child. He does a great job when he's emulating the father. I thought he was really great. I would give it to the father because I felt like he, for a non-actor, as I know they're both non-actors, but Mm. he actually really felt like a dad. Like just the times when he's being caring, the times he's being a little bit impatient with his son, all that stuff just felt very genuine. And uh, his name is Farhad Keradmand. Yeah, I, it's funny you mentioned that because I was taken out of the film by his performance a few times. Not in a good way. Interesting. Uh, no, I, I get that. Any specific parts you remember? That t- there were just a few line reads that he gave that I was like, oh, that's, that's a weird way to deliver that line. But that could also just be like, because this he's not an actor and this is the first time he'd ever done anything. Right. Yeah. Nitpicks and hot takes, which if you don't mind, I wouldn't mind combining with what aged poorly. Yeah. Do you, I'll let you run. You can go first. I've got a few thoughts. Um, I've already said mine, but essentially one of them was that I, f- I didn't like how how much European influence there was on this one whether it be the music or the complexion of the actors. Um, and then I also didn't like how slow it was at times. And and again, like I'm cool with slow movies. A bunch of the movies we've already watched have slow pacing. And I like it and it's purposeful. In this movie in particular, there's a number of moments where it's just needlessly slow. Your favorite movie you once said to me is uh, Transformers by Michael Bay, right? I think you said it's your all-time favorite. <laughs> that, that's slander. I did not say that. <laughs> but like looking at my favorite movies of all time, a lot of them are slow movies. Mm-hmm. And people who know me and who know what my favorite movies are, I think, will know that I have no problem watching slow movies. So it's just this one in particular, I feel like, it was needless. Like it didn't need to be as slow as it was in certain scenes. Some scenes I think it worked and other scenes I was like, it's too much. For me, what aged poorly, which is also the nitpick and hot take is, and you asked this question to me earlier in the podcast, is it exploitative? I don't think it is, but the question is probably worth asking Mm. because call this art or call it capturing beauty, call it cinema. I highly doubt most of the people in Gilan gave a shit at that moment that that filmmaker is making a movie. I think some people were like interested. Like there was that story I said about those two girls that wanted to wear their nicer clothes and they mm-hmm. kind of wanted to like doll themselves up for film. But I, I don't think that Kiarasami went there to like, oh, here's a great opportunity to like capture this devastation and make a great film out of it. But, mm. you know, there's something about it that's worth asking, I guess. Mm-hmm. In the, in, you know, it's, and I think it's even mirrored in the actor playing the Kiarasami role because. Like you said, he doesn't offer help to one of the writers. He's sort of there despite all this wreckage. He's after his own goals. He's kind of like, I need to find this kid. And he's not lending a helping hand necessarily. 
he's not there for other people's purpose. He's there for his own purpose. You know what I mean? Mm. Everywhere else you look, these people are helping one another. There's like Red Cross and there's like the people moving debris and cops and all this stuff. But our main character is focused on his goal. Mm. And it's a lot of the questions he's asking other people is how people can be in service of him with his goal. Mm. You know what I mean? And so is that even Kirstani being slightly aware that there's something a little bit like cold about the this film? Maybe he was aware. I don't know. That's sort of my thing. Nitpicks and hot takes. I will say with, with what aged poorly. This is hard to say. The complicated history of Kiarostami really irked me while watching this specific film. Like it does with no other, like no other time had it bothered me this much. Because from what I said to about the importance of kindness and the idea of the human capability to persevere, this guy has such propensity to realize and recognize the importance of, of, of goodness in this world. Mm. And he is, I mean, by all accounts, there's been a lot of like maybe rightfully so negative things he's been called out on potentially being a monster in a lot of cases and his treatment of women has been, I don't know. It's been, he's been called out on a lot of it and it frustrates me that a man who has such an innate ability to recognize how important kindness is be a man that has been called out on such horrendous behavior. Mm -hmm. And that bothers me. And it bothered me more with this film than it did with these other films. Yeah, I wonder if one of the reasons that he focuses on that so much is to try to make up for... I don't think you can make up for what he did, to be clear. Yeah. But I wonder if internally he's doing it to try to make up for what he's done. Whether that be sincerely to try to make amends, that part I doubt. I don't even know if you can do anything like that. But it might be a thing of him trying to be like, oh, no, I'm not I'm not a bad guy. Look, here's here's a bunch of movies on how beautiful everything is. Yeah. So yeah. It, it might be a way mm. of like him trying to even trick himself into feeling OK about the things he's done. I don't know. Yeah. Fair. I've never met him. I don't know. I'm, I can only uh, I can only theorize. Double feature lineup. Do you have a film that you think would make a pairing for this double feature film? Yeah, this what, and for this with this film. This and where's the friend's house? <laughs> like very simple. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? I I thought Bicycle Thieves because it's Italian neorealism that is. I mean, Italian neorealism was a lot of like staging and filming the after effects of tragedy. For Italian films, it was uh, World War Two, post war. Mm. Mm. And in this case, he's not using war as a tragedy, but using natural disaster. So Bicycle Thieves is a story about a father and a son on a quest mm. to find something. They're finding the bike that was stolen from them mm. because they need the bike to work. If they don't work, they don't make money. If they don't make money, they don't eat. And they that's they need this bike to survive. So it's Italian neorealism about a father and son on a journey to find something in the midst of all this tragedy as a backdrop. Once again, we have in this story, a father and son story in, this, in on a quest to find something with another tragedy in the backdrop, but this time it being... A natural disaster. So mm. I think, again, making for a very heavy double lineup, I think Bicycle Thieves could make a very interesting pairing for this. Mm. What if you were to pair it with something that's like totally completely different? Like Ernest Scared Stupid. <laughs> I was going to be like Borat. So the audience yeah. feels terrible at themselves for laughing at Sasha Baron Cohen's very racist portrayal of rural West Asians. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you think that's funny? <laughs> yeah. Can this be a modern Hollywood remake? Yeah, I think so. Like, you literally take 
any classic movie that's filmed in a place that eventually gets hit with an earthquake and you could come back and make like Coppola could go back and make a movie about something or Scorsese could go back and make a movie about something and hire an actor to play them in the movie revisiting where they made the other movie that everybody knows. Like, I think you could definitely do it. That's interesting because I think you don't agree. No. And I don't think it works because I think any remake that would center around either a fabricated tragedy, which would seem crass and disingenuine and cynical and missing the whole point of the movie or yeah. Or you could do, a, you'd have to find a real new tragedy. But I mean, it won't be a, like, if it's a Hollywood remake, you'd want to, it's, we have to be like a, tra- like an earthquake that happens in LA, which is fucking very likely. But mm. I don't see it even feeling like it'd be its own thing. I don't ever think it would be a remake of, it would just be another movie with someone doing their own take because it would just culturally feel different. Yeah. That's kind of what I was, what I was implying to you. Isn't that it's, it's a remake beat for beat. I think it would have to just tonally be or or in its initial idea, I think it would have to be similar. And I wouldn't set it in Hollywood. If it was a Hollywood production, my assumption is that the producers are based out of Hollywood. But you would have to set it in some like small town that a director has already uh centered a film. Yeah. So we sort of agree, I think. Hmm. Final thoughts and grades. I'll let you take it away. I don't really have much more to add for final thoughts uh, other than I've only seen two Kiara Sammy films and I had only seen two before we started the podcast. I'm pretty sure. No, you know what? I think I've seen a couple of his later films, but um, the two that are freshest in my memory are the first two of the Corcaire films, which are the two that we've reviewed so far. And of those two, this to me is not as good as where's the friend's house. I think some of that slow pacing again to me comes off as oh this needed a little bit of tightening this needed some revision so as a result i would give this movie like a b minus pretty low b minus b minus minus like i'm yeah b minus minus i'm like i don't want to give it a c plus but like i absolutely can't give it anything more than a b minus um First, on the final thoughts section, I just wanted to say something I forgot to bring up is the final shot of the film I love. The final shot of the film I'm obsessed with. Mm. First of all, it's it's another zigzaggy trail, which also echoes yeah. the uh, the where's my friend's house thing. Yep. But it's his car trying to make it up, and he's going to try to make it up the hill. He's a few kilometers away, but then his car stalls, and he can't make it. He starts falling back, and his car goes out of frame, and you think it's about to cut to credits, but then this like flaring orchestral upbeat music comes in, you see the car come in with more gusto and he pushes the car a little thing, yeah. a little like the little train that could, he makes it over the hillside and you find yourself sort of cheering for this moment. Like it's an overtime goal into the playoffs. And I feel like this scene sort of encapsulates like the strength of human spirit to persevere. I really, really think like, I really like that idea of like, you thought this car wasn't going to make it. And you know, you get to the end and you never get the answer as to whether or not he finds the kid. Again, Kiyosami constantly like likes toying with the audience of like, here's the quest, and we're gonna stop the film just short of him arriving at the quest. So you never really know. A lot of Kiyosami's films are, you know, obsessional quests that they almost always end in failures. 
a lot of critics were upset about that again. They thought it was a bad ending for a good movie. He and Kiyosami responded to that. He responded to that one negative comment saying that he thought giving people a false sense of satisfaction was a little immoral given the real tragedy taking place. He didn't want to give that answer as to whether or not the director finds the kid. And also the film isn't really about just one person. It's about the villages. Yeah, that's fair. So so with that, let me just say my grade first mm-hmm. is an A minus. Because I really, really liked it. And it might be up there as one of my, maybe my second favorite Kurosami of all time. After the number one, which I won't say yet on this podcast what it is. Didn't you give Where's the Friend's House an A? Maybe. I have to double check. We should keep a spreadsheet. Yeah, you're right. Of our scores. Maybe I'll give it an, I don't know. These things, <laughs> you're going to wildly fluctuate given any given day I'm given in. Given the, the I'm day, in. yeah, the mood you're in. But I will say, unless you have any other f- final thoughts, I'll, I'll, I'll give my closing remarks. Well, I would love to comment on, please on do, that please final do. shot. I, I like the way that the movie ends, the fact that he doesn't see the kids. Mm-hmm. I, I really like movies where you get just enough of the ending to get a resolution. Yeah. And it kind of tees up what could be a whole other story. So to me, he sees the kids and he's like basically about to see them. Yeah. It's not confirmed that those are the kids exactly, but I think it's like, oh, okay, that's them. You know, and to me, it's like, great. I got enough of what I needed and I'm satisfied with the fact that they're going to go off and meet and like have a whole discussion and catch up and whatever off, off screen. It's like teeing up another story. Right. So I really like when, when movies end like that. Um, What I didn't like was how long that last shot goes for. We like see him. He goes up the hill and then he falls down and then the guy pushes him and then he goes up and then he picks up the guy and then he leaves and he comes back. Like it was too much, too much again. It, like I understand you're trying to like draw out this moment and you know, it's, it's, it's supposed to breathe and you're like, Oh wow. What's going to happen next? Oh, there he is. Oh my God. Whatever. It was just too much. Did you have to pee during this movie? Like you just, had, like you're just like shaking and having to run to the washroom. No, but, but I will say the first time I watched it, I watched it pretty late at night. And I remember seeing that final shot and just being like, oh, my God, this is the most gratuitously long scene I've ever seen in my life. By the way, speaking of you saying that thing about and the story goes on at some later point, the third film, which I think neither of us have seen through the olive trees, is a continuation mm. of this in the same way, but you know, it's specifically centered around the groom. Oh, that's interesting. So it's about, I think, I mean, I don't want to, I haven't seen it. Other people listening to this probably have, so I don't want to talk about it too much without knowing, but that's, but cool. it is another behind the scenes layer of this film now centered around that groom character. So I'm really excited to see that for my first time. Mm, yeah, me too. Should I wrap up? Yeah. The idea of the ambiguity of the ending, I really like. And to me, it thinks, I think like, you know, like sometimes movies end in a way that we don't know the ending or sometimes they end in a way that it's not that we don't know the ending. It's that like this, it, it goes on after the film is over. We don't know for mm-hmm. certain if he finds the boy. We don't know for certain if the boy is alive. We don't have the answers to all these atrocities, the reasons, the explanations, the justifications. We're just faced with heartache and family and friendship and devastations. We're just left with a tiny yellow car trying to make it up a hill and life goes on. Mm. And that's why I think this ending is punctuated with a beautiful exclamation mark rather than a question. Well, it's a question and an exclamation mark. And I have to give it the rating that I do. Mm. Well, thank you for 
doing this with me, Farhan, as always. It's been a pleasure. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you, everyone, for listening. For Cinema Rex, I'm Farhan Moradi. I'm Kabe Mohebi. Stole your thunder there. You weren't expecting that, were you, Kabe? Ah, I like it. <laughs> good, way, good thing you do it. I like when you have agency. <laughs>